Garcia family, why don't you come up? Hosea, come up. Maria, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Let's give these wonderful people a big round of applause. Come on, guys. Let's wake up up on the stage. It's great to see you. Okay, so I think this should be working. Can we on with this? Yes, lovely. So I'm going to basically hand over because the Garcias, this is the third time I've heard this, and it's entertaining and wonderful and exciting. And uh, this is Maria, this is their daughter, and she's going to be translating because my Spanish is a little bit spotty. I didn't want to put you through that. And, uh, and they're going to share about the work. And uh, Chris actually told me this morning that you guys came into membership at Willapot Church the same day as Chris and Pauline Robinson. So they've been long-term members with us and on mission in Madrid. And so I'm going to stop talking and, uh, and hand over to Maria. And we're going to hear for a few minutes what God, God's doing over there. So, okay. <laughs> Here, we were here. And my English was terrible. So can you, you imagine now? It's getting very terrible. So I watched Maria 27 years ago. I used to teach English to her. Now she is my translator. So I think I do better in Spanish because I have been talking Spanish for 18 years. 18 years ago. The Lord sent us to a place of darkness, a place where drug addicts go to buy drugs, firearms. It's a place where people are half dead. They look like zombies. And the Lord took us there. And when I was there, I felt like this is the place where I'm going to open my office. And in that place, drug addicts, years ago, the Lord has touched their hearts. Their lives have been changed completely. And they've also been sent to other countries. So Betel and Madrid started there, but then also has, has gone to 25, 25 countries and um, all over Spain as well. And all because you guys have been praying for us and for Betel. And you guys have been supporting us. So you guys are a part of this. A part of what God is doing in Madrid. God has been doing miracles there and great things. <laughs> that happens a lot. Anyway, <laughs> today... <laughs> I thought everyone spoke Spanish. Um, today you could go to almost any part in the world and there would be a patel there of recovering addicts there. So you are welcome. So you are welcome. <laughs> God is doing really great things there. So we want you guys to keep praying for us. 
We've seen lots of miracles that God has done from young people that had no hope for anything. God has made pastors out of them. Most of the pastors in the Battelle congregation have AIDS. But for God, there's nothing impossible. God is using them. In that place, I encounter uh, young people, lots of young people. And they even go to this drug area with their parents to get drugs, and it's very sad. The enemy is doing really, really bad things there. But God is also doing very good things. And we don't only work in this drug area. God is opening also other doors. And also, God is using my beautiful wife, full of God. God is using her greatly. Now I work for her. She's my boss. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here with you guys. It's very emotional for me to see very familiar faces and people that have been so faithful to us, supporting us and praying. Because through your prayers, God has done so many miracles in the hospitals too and nursing homes. Lots of people have come to Christ. Lots of people have been healed. There's been miracles, incredible miracles. Sometimes the family members think it's impossible. But for God, there's nothing impossible. God bless you. If you want to know more about our ministry, May 4th, we are going to share videos. If you have questions, we will answer them. Or if, if I can't, God will. Thank Wonderful. You. Don't, don't go anywhere. Um, we want to pray for you. Um, so if you feel like you come and pray for the Garcias, maybe we can have some young adults, good mix. Let's gather around. We want to pray. Blessing on Jose and Sylvia and their incredible work. I'm going to get out of the way. Come on. Okay. Maybe you just reach your hand out to this incredible couple. As we pray, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you, first of all, for the example, Lord, in terms of ministry and long-term commitment to the mission field that Jose and Sylvia have faithfully committed their lives, Lord, to serving you in a really difficult situation. God, I thank you that their trust and their faith is not in man, but, Lord, is in you and your, your ability and your Holy Spirit and your power. So, Father, we pray now in the name of Jesus that you would fill them fresh, that, God, that they would be encouraged as they spend some time in rest as well as sharing their story in different churches. God, I pray that they would be refreshed and renewed, that, Holy, that the Holy Spirit would fill them with a fresh anointing and fresh power, that, God, that when they return to Madrid, that, God, they find that even more so that you will fill their mouths and their actions, and that, God, that more people 
would come to know Jesus and there would be more miracles and more healings. Father, we know that this is your heart and we know that this is your desire. So, Father, we just pray favor upon them, Lord. We pray, uh, Lord, we pray strength. We pray health. We pray wholeness and vigor and energy. And, Lord, I pray that as we consider our position and how we can help, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us really clearly that, God, we want to pray for them for sure. But, God, Lord, I pray that even in the South this morning, we'd be moved to support them financially, Lord. That, God, that we would actually put our money where our mouth is and actually say, yeah, we're going to commit to this. And so, Father, we want to love on this couple. We thank you for their incredible service. And we're honored that they are here this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. Now we'll give you a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Maria. You know, I really, uh, I really do encourage you to pray about how you can support the Garcias. Um, there's a little card here. I, I know their heart is, is never and nor is it now about telling the story in order to get money. That's, not, that's the furthest from You can tell just by listening to them this morning. However, I do think as a church, as South, let's, uh, let's, let's commit to this. Let's say, you know, we can put something on there. I would like to support by committing to. I want you to, uh, want you to pray before you leave this morning and hand this into the connection desk uh, as to what you're willing to give to that incredible work. And then May 4th um, is also a great time for you to for you to get to know a little bit more. So thank you. Thank you for your example and your heart and your love for the gospel. Romans 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible, so-called by people who have studied it and commentators. And it's a deep passage. It's a, it's a central truth. And it takes some grappling with and wrestling with. And I'm enjoying uh, studying it. And it's stretching me. And, it, and it's good. And we're, we're coming to this next section, which is verse 5 through to 8. And, and what we do as a church, we, we want to work through the Bible uh, by verse by verse. We want to see, sometimes we do topical preaching. But for the most part, we do expository. Because here's, here's what happens as a preacher. When you approach the Bible in an expository kind of way, uh, I can't get away with just preaching what I want to preach. Because the Bible dictates to me, okay, these are some difficult subjects. And Romans 8 is filled with challenging and sometimes controversial subjects. And we're going to hit one right in the face this morning. We're going to shake and we're going to grab hold of some truth. And we're going to say, look, this is what the Bible says. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. His ways are higher than my ways. I may not like it. This might slam into what I think is fair. But then we have to turn to the Scripture and say, okay, regards what I think, what does the Scripture actually say? So that's what we're going to do this morning. So grab your Bibles, grab your journals. I hope that you've been reading this chapter every day like I encouraged you to uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and we're going to read from verse 5, verse 8. I'm going to go quick, okay? I'm already going fast. I'm going to go really quick So I've got a lot of work to do. But my hope is this will inspire you to go and study for yourself and to pray. Verse 5, Romans chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, when you read passages like this, you might go, wow, this is, this is just, how does this even apply? How is this practically part of my life? So the first thing I want you to know is that Paul in this passage is forcing something on us. He's forcing an issue onto us, a profoundly important issue. And, and in order for us to understand the issue, we need to pull back and understand what Paul's goal is, what his desire is in, in sharing this, this truth. So for us to pull back, we need to understand a, a fundamental, non-negotiable truth that you'll find in Scripture, and it is this. That the church is the hope of a dying, hopeless, tragic, challenging, difficult world. If you, don't, if you want proof of that, then I'm going I'm to explain more. But you can see the opposite just by looking at the quite pathetic attempts sometimes in trying to bring change into our society. And we're very gullible. We think, oh yeah, if we can do this, then this will change and this will be better. And only to find out that actually when we come through that, things are just the same. Uh, Dala this morning uh, quite rightly said that we've spent time this morning from 9 o'clock. We pray every Sunday morning. We pray for you. We, we pray over you. We, sometimes we pray over the seats and, and we commit ourselves to praying. Um, but we also prayed over a situation I didn't know anything about that Drew shared about a, a young lady who has, has committed suicide, and she's 12. So here's the thing. I get angry when I hear that. Because the reality is, as a church, and I'm talking uh, Christendom and this church, that we carry within us, we say we carry within us the hope of the nations, the hope of the gospel, the, the answer to these desperate, tragic circumstances. We believe that. And what this passage is going to press upon us is whether we live that, whether we actually put our actions, our money, our lives, our ambitions, our goals, our thoughts on the truth of what we say that is ultimate in our lives. And for us to understand that the church is the hope, we need to understand that we are on mission. We're in this battle. We're in this fight. I think part of the reason that youth and young adults walk away from the church is because what they hear is just a list of things that they need to do and not do. And as parents, we often use that as leverage. Don't go there. Don't look at this. Don't watch this. Don't touch that. Don't smell that. Don't hang out with that person because Jesus doesn't want that. And Jesus is going, yeah, yeah, that, that may all be true because there's a higher mission. And we're in this adventure. We're in this fight. We're in a war. There's a higher calling. There's something more glorious, something more beautiful, something more ultimate than the world can ever offer. And it's called Jesus and the calling that Jesus gives us. And if we're to grasp hold of that, I believe youth and young adults will run towards that because they are dying to give their lives to something. And the world is very ready and willing to give them that something, ultimately leading to death. Whereas what we have as a church and what is inside of us is something so much more profound that they can actually give their life to for eternity. And we keep quiet. We stay stunned because what might they think? And so what Paul is forcing on us here is this idea of mission. 
Now you might look at this scripture and go, okay, I'm not seeing mission. I'm not seeing this calling. You know, we, uh, Sarah and I have been praying over the last couple of weeks, uh, very specifically, that God would send us workers for the harvest. And I've been meditating on this scripture a lot, and, and, it's, and Jesus actually gives us the instruction. The thing with harvest, I don't know an awful lot about uh, sowing and reaping and harvest. You know, we all know John Casorso, and, and uh, we've chatted with him and his orchards and everything else. And I talked to John about this a few months ago. I said, John, am I right in thinking that the hardest time when it comes to uh, seeing something grow and then bringing it in is not sowing the seed. The hardest time is actually the harvesting. Harvesting is hard work. It's blood, sweat, and tears. And Jesus says, send workers into the harvest. We need to pray that people would go into the harvest. Now, this is not a skipping off into the distance kind of story. This is people who are committed, who are going to give their lives, who are going to give blood, sweat, tears, money, prayers, commitment, conviction. They're going to give it all to the call, just like we've heard this morning with this wonderful couple of Garcias. Now, I know they will not enjoy me saying this, but we have an example. We go, this is very nice, but we have as just a real call as the Garcias in our city. There are people dying in this city. There are young people giving their lives to death in this city. So Paul forces something on us here. He's saying in the words, these are words of action. It's words like live, walk, set your mind. It's a call to action. It's a call to action. You know, I've, uh, I, I've, I've taken up a new uh, pastime. It's actually getting me fit for once rather than the pastime like burning wood and the, you know, all that kind of stuff, like the art and design stuff I do. My new pastime is actually road biking. I started it last year in the summer and this whole new world opened up. The people that I used to make fun of in Lycra is now, I, get, I actually understand why they wear Lycra. And if you actually biked any kind of distance, you will understand too why they wear that. Because it, well, we won't go into why, but there are specific biological reasons why you need to wear it. But here's what I've noticed. As I've been biking more and the times that I go biking are longer and and everything else, is that Kelowna is filled with cyclists. And many of you hate them. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but you're out there. You hate them. You're like, man, these, these people are a pain. Well, I'm out biking. I'm one of this crew now. I'm out there and, and, and I actually wear Lycra but under shorts because I don't think the world is ready yet for the full Lycra experience. I'll warn you if I do decide to go there. I've got shorts and t-shirt and, and I've just got like this regular, I say cheap, it was expensive, but I've been looking at other expensive stuff and I'm going, wow, my stuff's actually really cheap. So this is what happens when you go out biking. You know, I'm biking along, especially Lakeshore. I'm not going to tell you the time so you don't come and find me. I'm biking along, having a nice time. It's a beautiful day, just like today. And then there are other bikers who come the opposite way. And so I've noticed that some of them will, will wave. You know, maybe it's, uh, if, this is, if this is your bike, they'll do this, like that. Sometimes they give an elbow, like that. Sometimes it'll be a nod. And sometimes it's nothing at all. And I'm the idiot going, woo! And they're just like this, idiot. But you know, this is what happens, is they're assessing you. They're categorizing you. I know it. It's the same thing with golf. You go, oh, those clubs. Okay. 
the fact that they don't know how to use their several thousand dollar golf clubs is not, you know, you assess the equipment. You categorize somebody by the make of their bike or the make of their helmet or what kind of lycra they're wearing. And those of you who do road biking, you know, it's true. And you know what? I'm doing the same. Oh, Savello. Okay, Bianchi. Mm. I'm like, wow, that's a really nice bike. And I'm categorizing. One of my favorite things to do in an airport is to sit there and categorize people. Don't judge me. You're doing the same. You're doing the same. You're like, oh, I hope I'm not sat next to them. No reason. You're categorizing people all the time by what they wear, by what they say, what their hair is like, what piercings they have, what tattoos they might have, what their clothes are, what car they drive, what house they live in, what road they are, whether they're in uh, Rutland or whether they're in Glenmore or Dilworth. And we're categorizing all the time. That's what our culture does. Even those people who say they're not judgmental are still categorizing. Paul is doing the same. He's categorizing. He's forcing an issue on us. One of the challenges we've had as a church is that we categorize people to the point where we get judgmental. We categorize somebody into a certain compartment. We say, well, we're just going to kind of frown and wag our heads at them because they're not like us. In fact, one of the main criticisms of the church is that we are unloving and we don't care and, and we, we actually just kind of push people away, that we're, we're exclusive, we're dogmatic. And, and, you know, we could argue apologetics and say, well, no, Jesus isn't exclusive, he's inclusive and everything else. But I do think that there is good reason for people to say that generally we're very quick to judge. So what Paul is doing here is, is he's saying, listen, In order for you to be effective on the mission, you need to have a good understanding of who you are. More than that, he's saying you need to understand what you, Christian, have been saved from. Because if you understand where you have been and who you were and who you are now, then you're going to be far more effective on the mission later. Because what we do is we see people and we categorize them. And it stops there. What Jesus did is this. He saw people. And it caused him to love them. And if we follow the example, we see people, we should love them. If we don't love them, we're not going to pray for them. If we don't pray for them, then we're not going to win them. And if we don't win them, we're not going to send them. And the people who don't get sent aren't going to go out and see with compassion the desperate need that is in our culture. And for us to see without judgment, we need to understand, friends, I say this lovingly, but what we've been saved from, who we are. So Paul forces this issue on us. Do you see where I'm going? There's mission. But for us to be effective in the calling, we need to understand who we are. We need to examine ourselves. He gives us a starting point. He's asking this, what really motivates you? He's saying really, not just the outward appearance. What's really going on inside? Examine yourself. Do you? Do you regularly take time switch things off, find that place, find that situation where you genuinely reflect and examine yourself. You know, you push aside all the prayers of what you feel like you need and everything else. You actually say, Lord, show me myself. What is it that I need to confess? What is it that I need to know? Because we're called to live life deep not superficial. Our culture causes, calls us to be superficial. We're called to live life deep. And deep life starts with self-examination. And so Paul is going to force this 
self-examination test upon us. And we cannot avoid it. And if we do avoid it, we're not going to be any use in mission. If we jump into this and we come to it with open arms and open lives and open minds and say, okay, God, what is it you want to show me? Then while we're doing that, we learn more about ourselves and then we're more effective on the mission. So he's going to tell us there are two ways to live. And I'm going to tell you this morning there are two ways to live. There are two ways to live. That's it. And we read them in this passage. He's going to say, look, you can live in the flesh or you can live in the spirit. He said, if you live in the flesh, then that is going to lead to death. And if you read earlier on in Romans, he talks about this present day wrath as well as ongoing wrath. So people living death today as well as on into the future. He said, or you can live in the spirit. You can live in the spirit. See, Paul is placing a standard in front of us that we instinctively know is not the way we should live, which is called the flesh. doesn't even sound nice, does it? It's like, like you, can be, you can be of the flesh and then instinctively we recoil. No, we don't want that because that just sounds bad. With the spirit, that sounds good. We'll, we'll have that. But Paul is pressing into the flesh side of things so we can understand what the standard actually is that we're called to live by, which is the spirit. I've been rereading uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. It was recently voted by a uh, hundred top Christian leaders. I don't know who they were, but Christianity Today said that C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity is still voted the number one most important book in the eyes of these Christian leaders. And then uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book on discipleship was next. But Mere Christianity, if you've not read this, it's, an, it's a profound book. It's actually based on a series of talks that C.S. Lewis gave at wartime uh, Britain. And, and then he kind of paraphrased it somewhat and put it into this book. Um, it's an incredible book. One of the first things you're going to read in the chapters is he says this. He says, human nature, there's a standard. Um, And he calls it the law of nature. He calls it the moral law where there's just this instinctive, regardless of which country you're in, the culture may look different, but there's this instinctive moral standard that's inside humanity. And you can start looking and examining it and you can see things like everybody knows it's not good to be selfish. It's not good to steal. It's, It's not good. You know, there's these standards And he says this, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a curious way, in a certain way, and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature, but they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So Paul is saying this, look, there's a flesh and there's a spirit C.S. Lewis is saying we have this instinctive knowledge of the moral good, the spirit, and yet the flesh keeps on crowding in. So Paul is saying, look, there's two ways to live. This word flesh. When we think of flesh, we often think of sexual sin or uh, anything to do with the body because of the word flesh. But actually, flesh in this context is is really summing up this idea of self-centered, sin-dominated life. Self-centered, sin-dominated life, the flesh. When we think of good and evil and flesh and spirit and 
things that are obviously evil and things that are obviously good, and then we start categorizing people. On this side of the scale, people who are obviously evil, we would put dictators or, or Hitler or some of these people in history. We can clearly say, yeah, that, that's evil. And then on the other side of the scale, we might place somebody who we know to be inherently good, like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or somebody like that. And then there's this scale in between the, the evil and, and the good flesh, if you like, and and spirit on the other side. And and here's what Paul is going to press into us here. He's going to say, when you come to the word flesh, there is no scale. There is no scale. You do have the obviously evil people, the criminals. They're they're easy to spot. They're the ones that we're quick to judge. And then, then you've got people who are indifferent to God, but generally they're good people. Then you've got people who are spiritual seekers. Maybe they're, you know, they're chasing after uh, the spiritual life, the pluralists, the, 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 uh, the uh, people who are seeking a higher power, the God of self. Buddhism, for example, which, by the way, is one of the fastest growing religions in our country. And let me tell you why. First of all, they're smart. They don't call it Buddhism. They might go under the term uh, mindfulness or Zen. Um, and so, especially in our schools, I've mentioned this before, this is very, very popular. This one religion is allowed in our public schools, and it's called Buddhism. Do not think our school district is exclusive when it comes to religion. It is, it is exclusive to one religion, Buddhism. Because it's a beautiful religion for those who do not want a god. It's a great religion because there is no God. It's all about me and it's about finding presence and peace and self and and my moment. And Christians, if you love to read books about peace and self-help books, you'll see a thread of Buddhism through it. The answer is not you. The answer is not the higher power called Glenn. It's subtle. But they're on that scale. They are still in the flesh as far as Paul is concerned. Then you have the people who are decent, moral, kind, wonderful people, but indifferent to God. They too, according to Paul, are in the flesh. There is no category. You're either in the flesh, outside of Christ, or you're in the Spirit, in Christ. Those are the two categories. So when you look at people who are good, moral, kind people who don't know Jesus, it's very difficult for us to consider that these people are all going to hell. Because that's the reality. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't matter how good your acts are. If you are outside of Christ, you are going to hell. You are not forgiven. You are separate from God. And so what do we do with that? How could God punish somebody who is just so dang nice? How is that possible? How is it that they are in the flesh when they seem to be living in the Spirit? Can I say there are people in church, this might be you, that you do the moral thing, you've been to church, you've, you do all the things right, but you just still are living in the flesh. Paul cuts through it and says, look, if you're in the flesh, then your destiny is death. Read the passage. If you're in the Spirit, then your destiny is life. So what do we do with this where people are just so good and so kind and so lovely and you're like, man, you know what? That person's just nicer than a lot of Christians I know. How could God 
judge that? How can God punish that? Well, think of it this way. Think of a child who's been given everything by their parents. Everything they could ask for, everything they need. They've been brought up wonderfully well. They've been given good morals. They've been given good values. They've been given this inside awareness of what is right and what is wrong, given a good education. And then the parents have worked hard to send them off to university, and off they go. They go to university, and they work hard there. But while they're at university, they're starting to drift away from their parents, so much so that when it comes to their ceremony, even though they, they graduate as valedictorian at their university, they don't invite the parents. They stop picking up the phone so much. The emails start diminishing, and slowly they've just separated themselves from the parent. This young person then goes on to do great things. They get a great job. They do humanitarian efforts. They do good Good things in this world that have good effect, all the while ignoring the parents, not liking the parents, dismissing the parents, not interested in the parents, not acknowledging the parents' hard work. You would say confidently that this young person has been doing good things. But their goodness is detached and severed from the source of their good, which is the parents'. So it doesn't matter what the good things look like. If there is an ignorance to what the parents have done, then is this person good, friends? They may be doing good things, but that goodness flows from where they've come from. So when we live, it's like enjoying the warmth of the sun and enjoying all the beauty and the and like, man, this is so great. I love this weather. While then saying, it's just all of this is me. This is me that's creating this good weather. It's, it's me that is emanating this good feeling and warmth. Without acknowledging the sun is the one that is the source of the warmth. That's how crazy that is. And that is what humanity is outside of God. Because God is the source of good. God is the source of love. God is the source of mercy. God is the source of life. And all those good people who are living, doing good things, if they are doing it separate from God himself, then they're in the flesh. That, friends, is Bible. The same Bible that says that God loves us and cares for us also says that there's flesh and there's spirit. But then it goes on. Verse 8 For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. Those are some really difficult words. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, against God. Not, oh God, Jesus is my my buddy, Jesus is my homeboy, yeah, I really like Jesus, he's, he's a great teacher, you know, I'd, I'd love to hang out with Jesus. No, if you are in the flesh, if you are living life outside of God, if you are not acknowledging God, if you've not submitted to God, if you are not in Christ, this scripture says you are hostile against God. So the same Bible that you look to to say that God is all loving also says that if you are outside of Christ, you are hostile. And then he goes on just to press the point, you cannot please God, he says. You cannot please God. How does the scripture tell us that we please God? It says by faith. Faith pleases God. In Christ pleases God. We're incapable, 
In Colossians chapter 2, Paul, same writer, says this, that the result of sin is that we are dead in trespasses. In Ephesians 2, he says we are dead in trespasses, following after the things of the world, the passions of the flesh. So there's this idea that if we are in the flesh, not only are we hostile and incapable, we are hostile and incapable because we are dead. We're dead. I'm sure if you listen to some of the stories that the Garcias would share, that they have come across many people who are dead people walking. It's like the walking dead. Can I tell you, we live in zombie world. We live in the walking dead. Now, before you grab your pickaxe and, you know, you go have at it, please don't say, well, Glenn said, you know, but the reality is, is the scripture is, for us to understand how incredible the beauty of the cross is, we need to understand what we've been saved from. For us to understand that we cannot judge and stand in judgment of people who live differently, we need to understand that we have been saved from being hostile, not pleasing God, and dead. If we place ourselves in any kind of like good light outside of that, then we're likely to judge because we're going to think that our good works are down to us. Where they're not, it's down to God bringing life. So Paul presses this in the New Testament constantly. Outside of Christ, you are dead. And dead people, I've seen a lot of them in my job. They're not capable of anything. That's what that scripture says. They're incapable. They're enslaved to the things of the world. And those things may be good, like the warmth of the sun. But they're dead. So this is the the hard part of this passage that we are surrounded by people, if the church could wake up to the reality of people's destiny, then I think we are more likely to open our mouths and tell them the good news. If we understand what their, the, the present reality of their situation was, that we are more likely to actually get up and say, I need to share something with you. But the less that we force ourselves into scriptures like this and we just want to go, well, I don't want to think about that, we've not got any kind of desire to share with people because we don't see them as in being in danger. People are in danger. Twelve-year-old girls. People are in danger because they're dead. We live in a society of dead people. This is, this is popular. This, this preaching generally doesn't fill churches. <laughs> But we know this to be the truth. But here's what I am very grateful for. Even though we live separate, like a child who's doing good things, not taking any notice of the father who gave them that good thing, that father comes searching for that child. Right at the beginning, God came looking for Adam and Eve, even though they had sinned and were hiding in shame behind a tree. God came to Noah. It was God's initiation. Came to Noah and said, there's a storm coming. Here's the way. Here's the escape. Here's the way out. God came to Abram after Abram's dad had died. And and he gave him a hope, a future. He came searching for Abram. God came to Jacob with a ladder. God came to Moses with a burning bush. God came. God called out to Samuel. God came looking for David. God came to Isaiah with a burning rock. And then God sent Jesus. 
You see, God, even though he says this is the reality of living in the flesh, friends, you are heading to death. I will come pursuing you. I will look for you. I will find you. I will call you constantly like a good parent would with a lost child. Does never give up, never, ever gives up, pursues to the end. We serve a God who pursues. Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So we could fold our arms and go, well, I don't like this truth about death and flesh. But the reality is that God doesn't leave us there. He sends his son Jesus and says, in Jesus there can be transformation. You can move from the flesh to the spirit. Death to life, flesh to spirit. And then verse 5, he says, those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So Paul is saying those things that we chase after believing that are going to be life, whatever that might be for you, what is it that we think is going to give us life? What is it that we're communicating to our kids that's going to give them life? Is it a true God with a big G? Or is it just a lie of the culture that says, yeah, you chase after this, you're going to find happiness and joy. Paul says that is going to lead to death. If that is pursued without the call of God on your life and in Christ, it ultimately will lead to death. He says, but set the mind on the things of the Spirit. That that leads to life and peace. So there's this supernatural, beautiful, incredible change that happens when we submit to the reality that God comes looking for us in our state of death. Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus is dead. I remember years ago, I read the uh, Glaswegian version of the Bible in the New Testament. There is actually a thing. You can read it, and it's phonetically Glaswegian as you read it. It's hilarious. And, you know, arguably somewhat blasphemous, but I was young and ignorant and. Actually, I'd probably still give it a bit of a read, but it's, uh, it, it's great because it replaces the words that the crazy Glaswegians use instead of, and I remember distinctly reading Lazarus, and it came to Lazarus, and you remember the part where they're saying, Jesus, don't, op- don't open the grave, don't go in, because at the old AV says, it stinketh. The Glaswegian Bible says, because he guffs, guffs, I guffs in there, don't go in there, Jesus, I'm warning you. Why does it guff? Because he's dead. Dead people don't do anything but stink. Jesus comes along. What does Jesus do? Get up. Get out. Let's go. He speaks life into the death. He speaks life into the nothing. He speaks life into the, uh, the, the trajectory of death. And Lazarus responds, See, Lazarus is not laid there going, well, I think I might come alive now. I know I've been dead for a bit, but now I'm going to decide on life. It doesn't happen that way. It's God who initiates the life. It's God who makes the pursuit. It's God who gives the call. It's Jesus that calls out, get up. And for some of you, you've not responded to that. You've not responded to that. Trying to figure it out yourself. Christians, maybe you've forgotten that. God chose you. He pursued you. Maybe it took him years. Maybe it just took him a little while, but he pursues us. Now, for those of you who enjoy reading theology, you might go, wow, this sounds awfully Calvinistic. 
Calvinists believe that God is the one that initiates faith. Calvinists believe that, uh, that it's nothing to do with you. Well, let me just very quickly tell you this. The opposite of Calvinism is Armenianism. And I want to assure you that both Calvinists and Armenians believe that it is God that initiates faith. Why? Because the Bible says you're dead unless God calls. What they do differ on is whether or not you can resist it. Calvinists believe you can't resist that call. Because God is God and he's all powerful and he gets what he wants. Armenians believe, no, 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 God's greatest gift to us was free will and you can resist it. So then you've got Calvinists and you've got Armenians both agree that it's God who initiates faith. It is Jesus who shouts, get up. So my thinking is this. If Jesus is shouting, get up, why, whether you choose it or not, why not? Why wouldn't you? Because why choose death over life? And we could talk about Calvinism, we could talk about our theology, and I enjoy that. But God initiates faith because dead people can't do anything. So why is this good news for the Christian? Because when you go walking amongst the dead, you need to understand that it's God that's initiating faith. Because what did Jesus say? Pray that workers would go into the harvest. The harvest is ready. Why? Because it's God that has initiated the faith in the harvest. So when you go, Glenn, I don't think I know what to say. I, I don't know, I might mess it up. You know, maybe, I, I'm, I'm not like you. you. You're clearly quite gobby, as we talk, say in Britain. You know, you like to chat, that's fine. I'm not like you. That's not for me. I'm just going to live a Christian life and hope that they pick up on it. Like Christian B.O., you know, like, I'm just going to, wow. Well, you must be really Christian. I noticed that you didn't drink at the pub. Can you tell me about this Jesus? I mean, that's not how it works. Bible says we need to open our mouth and speak the truth. So why is this truth important for that? It's because we're not important enough to save people's lives. All we have to do is be obedient to the scripture that says to tell them about the life and it's God that does it all because the harvest is ripe. Friends, we need to get out and tell people about Jesus. I was on my walk the other day and I bumped into a, a gentleman and we got chatting and it soon came around to Christianity because I like to do that. And then he said, he said listen, he said, I admire your faith, but I, I just don't understand it. I, I, I really want it. And I'm like, come on, yes, because he's harvest. God's already worked in him. Do you see that? And it doesn't, I'm not smart enough to change his heart and his mind. I'm just... I just speak. And you know what? I might never see him becoming to know Jesus. That's okay. I've been obedient to the scripture. So ask yourself, when was the last time you had a conversation with somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Because if it isn't recently, I'm lovingly going to tell you, flesh or spirit, because the spirit will cause you to represent the spirit in our community. The only way that we're going to see this church full of people, and, and Luke prayed it this morning, people who don't know Jesus, is by us who do know Jesus going out and talking to people and say, you've got you to come. You've got to listen. Do you know people aren't convinced by your words? They're convinced by the spirit that's in you. 
And if we aligned our lives with the Spirit, then amazing things would happen. Because He changed you and you were dead. And He can change them and their deadness. And this is convicting. I know it's convicting. But it's truth. Because what else are we really thinking life is about? You know, is it about just filling up our bank accounts and... You know, and, and yeah, it is about helping people. Why are we helping people? It is about serving the poor. Why are we serving the poor? Is it just so that we can feel like we've done something? Or is it so that we can tell them about Jesus? Well, it sounds very bait and switchy to me, Glenn, that we're only serving them just so we can tell them about Jesus. Because that's their greatest hope. Their greatest hope is Jesus because he calls them out and he says, get up. You get a new heart, you get a new direction, you get a new mind, you get a new priority. And how can we tell if you're living in the Spirit? First Thessalonians chapter 1 says this, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, He pursued you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't what that person said to you, it was the Spirit of God that changed you. You were harvest. Just waving in the wind. And then somebody, arguably somebody has been praying for you for a few years. And then somebody had the guts to come and challenge you and seek you out and share the gospel. And you got clipped off and you got sewn into the family. Not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. How do we know that they're in the Spirit? Because they became imitators and examples. They became imitators and examples. So one of the supernatural effects of the gospel changing us, taking us from death to life, from flesh to the Spirit, is that we become examples and imitators. Man... We're not perfect. We're not perfect. But the scripture says that our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. Our judgment decreases when we realize what we've been saved from. And those of you who've known me long enough will know that I consider myself one of the most messed up people I know. No amens from this front row. Thank you. I am. I'm not perfect but my mind is set. We're a church where it's okay not to be okay. And if it's okay not to be okay, then I can't judge those people who are not okay. Because I'm not okay. But by the grace of God, I stank. But now I've moved from the flesh to the spirit and Jesus sought me out. I I changed. And so Jesus now places an example upon my life. whether or not I actually use it. You know, I've been praying over the last couple of weeks, so I'm going to come to a close with this, for real. I've been praying about the church, and we had a leaders meeting a couple of weeks ago, and, and I gave them, and I will be handing it out to everybody here in a couple of weeks, but I gave them a, a, a kind of a printout of everything that's happened in the last seven years at the South. Everything I could think of, I put on paper. And it was a full side, two columns, two columns filled, small font, with all the good things that God has done in our church. 
and I gave them out. I'm talking everything from renovations to new ministries to things that I'd even actually forgotten about. I went back in all the emails that I sent out since 2013, which is still not right to the beginning, and looked at the different things we tried, like the different prayer initiatives and, and everything else. And I gave these things out, and I, and I said to the leaders, and some of them are here so they know I'm telling the truth. First of all, they were like, wow, this is, this is amazing that God has done so much in our church. The people at the church need to see this because we forget. And then I asked this question, what's missing? What's missing on that list? And so we studied it, and I'd already seen it, so I'd kind of thought things through myself. What's missing? People coming to know Jesus at the volume and the number that they should be. And some of you were saved in this church, and I'm grateful for that. But it's not enough, friends. There's not enough people being saved from hell in our city. So no more excuses because in our next morning, Sarah and I went for our walk and we were walking and I shared all this with Sarah after I'd thought all this through and, and we said, well, you know, clone is really difficult and clone is this and clone is that. And I said, what, what would it look like if we just said no more excuses, no more, oh, well, that's just cloner. If the, if the hill's really good, then the church attendance goes down and if the lake is really warm, then the church attendance goes down. You've got these kind of few weeks, which we're in now, where the hill's rubbish and the lake's cold and so church attendance tends to go up. Let's just put all that aside and say, why is it people aren't coming to know Jesus in our church? well, we need a new pastor, okay? But is it my job to save everybody? No. No, it's not. Yes, it is my job to go and share the gospel with people, but it's body ministry. We have gifts and abilities in this room that when we work together, the scripture says, we'll actually see people coming to know Jesus. So there's going to be some changes. No more excuses. We need, to, we need to pull together some teams and take a long, hard look at some of the things. Now, immediately, we come up with ideas because we come to church with preferences while well, we need more of this. You know, can I be really honest? And I say this lovingly, but we're in trouble when there's people complaining that we have Starbucks coffee. Really? That... <laughs> Starbucks is sponsoring us as a church. And, and I had people emailing me going, well, we prefer the other coffee. You emailed me this. And I'm sorry if that was you. There's <laughs> people going to hell. Are we living in the spirit? Or are we living in the flesh? Because those people in the flesh only see that which is ahead of them and their concerns and their worries and their lives. Those people who are in the Spirit see people. They love people. They pray for people. They win people. They send people. And so as I look at the church, I'm thinking, okay, friends, maybe it's a time for no more excuses and we bring some change. What does that look like? Well, we need to pull together some teams. We need... We need people who are really going to press into the welcome team. People who are going to visit people. That maybe we could be a church that if a new guest comes to our church, within a week they get a plate of cookies and an invite to something saying, we're really glad you came. Well, you go, Glenn, I don't know about that. But what does that communicate about the love of Jesus to that person? Well, Glenn, I haven't got the time. And that's the challenge. 
was so busy. And it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Because I think, why are we here? So we need people in the welcome team. We need to do more outreach to seniors. I'm not looking at anybody when I say this, but we haven't got enough seniors. And we need to be a cross-generational church. We need a team of people who are going to focus on that. Who are going to focus on what does it look like for the South to actually reach out to people who are advanced in age but still don't know Jesus. We need to run our own alpha. We're going to have an alpha in the mission. And we're probably going to call it something like round the world. We're going to do different meals on different nights and stuff like that. But I can't do all this myself and neither can Sarah. And I very rarely preach like this, but I'm pleading with you to look at this scripture and examine yourself and ask yourself, are you living in the flesh or are you living in the spirit? And if you're living in the spirit, are you selling your life towards ministry and calling? And I'm not saying that that therefore has to involve you joining the alpha team. But if you're not doing anything, then maybe these are some of the things that we could consider to work hard towards as a church and see people coming to know Jesus. Because if we run an alpha, then that means then we need to start praying for people and inviting people to come. Well, I haven't got time. That's, I plead every morning in my prayer and I cry over the reality of what God has called us to and whether or not we are fulfilling the call. Because the scripture says, Paul prayed for the Ephesians church and said this, he said, I pray that the eyes of their hearts will be enlightened so that they might know the hope to which they are called. My prayer is that our eyes would be enlightened in our hearts so we would understand that Jesus came pursuing you, chose you, so that we could go and pursue others on his behalf. We need a prayer team. We need a pastoral care team. Because all these things right now are falling on Sarah and I and on a very small group of people. We're going to start leadership training. We're going to have a membership class. And we're going to start serving as much as we possibly can our local community. That's a lot of work, isn't it? And I get a bit sweaty just thinking about it. I need your help. Jesus is calling us. And time is running out. There's people going to hell. And this passage is forcing us to consider, are we living in the flesh and chasing after the things of the flesh that ultimately lead to death? Or are we chasing after the things of the Spirit that ultimately lead to life and peace? And if we do that, then that automatically means that we're going to be an example and be imitators in Christ. I'm sorry. I say this humbly, but if anything I've said about call and about doing what God has called us to do causes you to think that this church is not for you, that's okay. Because Jesus turned the world upside down with the one or two. And I have a feeling that we can do just the same. Because the spirit that's in them is exactly the same as the spirit in you and me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray you would forgive us. And even now, Lord, I can hear the lies. The lies that say you shouldn't have spoken that. People aren't going to like it. 
Father, I, I confess as pastor of this church, many of whom aren't here right now, I confess that I have listened to more lies than I have to your truth. And Lord, I have not taken steps that I need to take in order to see more people come to know you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I'm being obedient to your word right now. I'm praying that you would send workers into the harvest. The Father, it's not about the joining the teams, Lord. It's about us going out with your spirit and your boldness and saying no more excuses. Lord, I pray, Lord, for those in our area who desperately need to hear the truth of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would fill us, and and I pray this in echo to the disciples in the New Testament. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with a boldness to go and share, to live life differently. To not judge and distance ourselves, but Lord, to press in. Lord, I pray that every person in in hearing of my voice, Lord, that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. That God, that they would intimately know the calling you have given them. How much you love them. So much, Lord, that you pursued us and called us out. And that the call still goes on. Get up. Get up. South, get up do this. Father, give us the boldness to examine ourselves, to prioritize, to put aside our preferences, to take the risk and to chase after. Lord, that beautiful promise you have given us to live life in the Spirit. Thank you, Lord. I want to encourage you to do something. Just we've got our eyes closed. I'm not going to ask